0: Welcome to Crosstucks Conversations that Drive Innovation. In this podcast, we featured well-known payments expert Hugo Cuevas-Moore. This series is based on his 2023 book, Sending Money, Forex, Remittances, Migration, and the Fintech Revolution, which dives into the evolution of the cross-border financial services industry. Crosstucks is published by Crosstech, a conference and consultancy service company based in Miami, Florida. Each episode is 24 to 28 minutes long. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Hugo Cuevas Moore, and this is our episode 6, the first part of the short history of foreign exchange. In the money transfer industry, receiving funds in one currency and having to settle and or pay in another currency makes this money exchange part of the process of offering cross-border payments. Exchangers have existed since ancient times. Some of you might recall the Bible. There are some famous merchants in the temple in Jerusalem, exchanging coins and valuables. They were supporting the market makers in purchasing and selling products, but Jesus expelled them from the temple. Foreign exchange in itself, or as part of a money transfer transaction, has been evolving for centuries. I will concentrate on its modern history to better understand its intimate relationship with the cross-border payment industry. Today, the foreign exchange market in itself is the largest and most liquid of all the financial markets. I decided to categorize that this history in four major periods, pre-World War and the post-war period, the end of the century, 1980s to around 2000, and the current era. I will also discuss the impact of international tourism in the foreign exchange sector, as well as e-commerce. I decided to divide this short history of foreign exchange in three parts, this one, episode six, and the next two episodes, episodes seven and eight. But to understand the history of foreign exchange, we have to talk about the history of gold. Very early, gold became important as the metal that represented wealth. We can ask ourselves why. The first reason is that gold is rare, it's difficult to extract, it's durable, it's not corrosive. In addition, its portability, durability, uniformity, and the relative ease of recognition of gold were also fundamental. However, gold, has also visual beauty and magnetic appeal that became valuable as humanity developed a desire to possess it market demand increased its price in many regions of the world miners rulers different groups prospered because of it in the 6th century BC the first gold coins were produced the rulers of the moment decided to control its production gold coins then became widely accepted as a means of exchange, as a standard to name the price of other metals, products, and services. In the 19th century, newly formed countries and republics adopted the gold standard when bills were printed. The gold standard ensured that any amount of paper money printed by the government could be exchanged for its gold value. This boosted the credibility of paper money, and when the U.S. adopted the gold standard in 1879, the U.S. dollar was fixed at $20.67 per ounce of gold. The U.K. fixed its British pound sterling rate at 4.2474 pounds sterling per ounce. Within the gold standard, a country was limited to only mining as much national currency as gold was held in its reserves. The purpose was to guarantee the value of a currency. This made it easy to calculate the value of each country's paper money, such as the value of dollar against the English pound, for example. This made the foreign exchange industry develop. By 1913, the number of forex trading firms in London rose from 3 to 71 within 10 years. But after the war, countries had to print money to finance the war expenditures, which signaled the beginning of the end of the gold standard. After World War II, the U.S., the U.K., and France met at Bretton Woods in New Hampshire to design a new world economic order. The U.S. currency, having escaped the impact of the war, became the benchmark against which other currencies were measured. The U.S. dollar was fixed at $35 per ounce of gold, and the various world currencies were expressed in terms of the dollar. The new system required each country to value its currency in terms of the U.S. dollar and keep the exchange rate within 1% of parity. Under special circumstances, they could allow it to fluctuate by up to 10%, but if 10% was insufficient, the country was required to seek approval from the International Monetary Fund, IMF, to modify it. This kept countries from devaluing their currencies for their own benefit. The Bretton Woods system began to weaken in the 1960s when governments and individuals outside the U.S. accumulated large amounts of U.S. dollars. The big concern at that time was whether the U.S. had enough gold to redeem all the paper dollars in circulation around the world. The country could demand that the U.S. exchange their dollars for gold. For this reason, the U.S. decided not to risk it and to abandon this system. And in 1971, it announced that U.S. dollars would no longer be exchangeable for gold. This decision resulted in the development of today's managed floating exchange rate system. In most developed nations, government control of foreign exchange trading ended around 1973, but most governments controlled the rate of exchange of the market by participating in it, buying or selling currency, and by many other macroeconomic methods. Gradually through time, countries began to liberalize their foreign exchange policies, except for a few that failed to control speculation, currency outflows or inflows, markets with financial crime problems, or bank-controlled competition over these services. In every country, money exchangers, whether individuals or companies, developed their foreign exchange services with diverse rules and challenges, regarding formality versus informality, legality versus illegality, the parallel or black markets, and degrees of control versus degrees of freedom. Apart from banks that began offering foreign exchange services, private firms, foreign exchange companies or FECs, dealt mainly with paper money, but some also ventured into cross-border deals using book settlements or electronic payments and the informal value transfer systems that I explained in the last episodes hawala using compensation between incoming and outgoing currencies without moving physical paper money between countries these businesses exchange hard currencies such as dollars pounds sterling swiss francs etc for local currency and vice versa for travelers and individuals seeking to accumulate hard currencies, to save for fear of political instabilities, persecution, currency devaluations, or to make purchases abroad. Small foreign exchange companies at every country's borders flourish throughout Latin America, Africa, Asia, and Eastern Europe, trading currencies and making profits by exchanging money on one or both sides of the border. In addition, networks of money exchanges were established based on trust and an impeccable and flawless commitment to honoring the trades they committed to execute. Thus, as an example, my grandfather in the 60s might needed to make a $15,000 payment in one country and would call several money exchanges looking for the best price and availability of funds and over the phone make the deal for the payment to take place. Through a simple system of credits and debits, sums were handled, sometimes between two parties if there was sufficient volume back and forth, or with third parties. If a money exchanger broke his word, he would immediately go out of business. Now, when my grandfather, Enciario traveled to the U.S. and opened an account at Barclays Bank in New York, he started to use his checks as paper currency and utilized these accounts for credits and debits. That was a step forward in the improvement of exchange services. To illustrate the pre- and post-war foreign exchange evolution, nothing better than the life of U.S. most famous foreign exchange business person, Nicholas Dick. I will use his relentless life as he founded one of the first transnational facts in the U.S., one of the largest facts in the world. We can trace the stigma of the forks industry to him. You will see from this account of his life what I mean. For almost 50 years, he built a network of business ventures in many cities around the world to provide retail and wholesale foreign exchange services, moving funds in and out of countries, often bribing foreign government officials, assisting millionaires, dictators, and business people and at the same time evading investigations and prosecutions. In the end, I think he could have survived if he had realized soon enough that times had changed and friends had turned into foes. Even though his legacy is questionable, many exchange houses and money exchanges worldwide did business with one of his companies at one time or another. Let's begin with his bio. Nicholas Louis Dick was born on October 8, 1905, in Hatzek, in the then Austro-Hungarian Empire, now Hightech, in Romania. Dick received his Ph.D. in economics in 1929 from the University of Neuchâtel in Switzerland. After migrating from Europe, he arrived in New York in October 1939 and founded his foreign exchange company that same year. He shut it down shortly after when he sought employment and was hired by the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS. The OSS preceded the CIA, and Nick worked there under William Wild Bill Donovan and conducted intelligence jobs through Southeast Asia and Southern Europe. Those undercover jobs during the war, managing and moving currencies, paying spies and informers, gave Dick a deep knowledge of underground money networks. After the war, in 1946, Dick reorganized the company in New York and began operations as Dick & Company, opening its fur locations outside the Bib Apple in Washington, D.C. That was 1950. In January 1954, the York Tribune Herald announced Dick's purchase of the Pereira Company, which was his main competitor at the time. The manner and methods used by Dick to purchase the Pereira Company are also clouded in mystery, creating many doubts about the legitimacy and transparency of this operation. The major theft within the Pereira Company triggered the sale and the merger with Dick Company. On the other hand, Lionel Pereira, of Pereira, Manfred, and Brooks, had opened an office in 1953 to offer foreign exchange and gold coin trading services. Like Leonel Pereira had participated in World War II, enlisting in the Navy after studying at Harvard and working at the Hanover Bank. His wartime achievements, including finding the famous Nazi hidden assets at Merkur's in a salt mine. It's a very interesting story. There, in that mine, the Nazis had stored 8,000 gold bars, banknotes, and hundreds of works of art, and Pereira was in charge of counting and valuing the find, more than $200 million in gold. That's where he got most of his early training in foreign exchange. Pereira then later became famous when he created the Tip Pack, which was a package of coins and bills for American tourists and business people to tip when they arrived in Europe. Pereira died young at the age of 54 in 1964. It was from this company that Manfred Dordell & Brooks was born, a corporation known as MTB, which continues to operate as one of the most recognized precious metals firms now a subsidiary of the Swiss Group. However, the bank, founded by the group NTB Bank, was involved in a highly publicized case in Argentina in 2000 related to Casa Piana and Gold Experts, leading to the sale of the bank to the Connecticut Bank of Commerce, CBC, that same year, and later closed by the U.S. authorities in 2002, just two years after. Now let's go back to Deke. He purchased the first National Bank of Fleischmann's, (FNB) in 1957 and founded the Foreign Commerce Bank in 1958. FNB was renamed Dick National Bank and it attracted many depositors from Latin America because of the devaluation at that time of their currencies. To add to his growing empire, in 1966 Dick purchased a former Viennese bank. Bankhouse Mayor, changing his name to Bankhouse Dick. The company, now Dick Pereira, after the merger with the Lionel Pereira's company, grew steadily during the 1960s and 1970s, creating a mess of companies and subsidiaries worldwide. In March 3, 1966, in an issue of the Wall Street Journal, Dick explained clearly and openly his way of moving money informally from one country to another to evade local controls. He claimed that he accepted payment in local currency in the Dick & Company account and then found a foreign partner who needed the local currency and could pay him in dollars in the U.S. or in another country. Just a classical Hawala system. Another method used by Dick & Company was the trading of airline tickets. Tickets were purchased in one place and then sold to individuals in another country or cashed in at the airline's foreign offices, something that could be done many years ago. Dick is quoted in the same article as saying that many Latin American diplomats liked this method. On June 12, 1964, Time magazine referred to him as the James Bond of world money in an article titled, Money, the World of Dick Nick, which broke him world frame. By 1970, Dick and Company entered the precious metal business to handle the dollar fluctuations and issued gold convertible certificates, priced and used as currency. The sale of gold became very popular in his offices, and the Gold Standard Company even issued a coin with his silhouette, this company created five coins of prestigious economists Edward Harwood, Frederick Hayek, Henry Hazlitt, Nicholas Dick, of course, and Adam Smith. Dick Coin has two mottoes accompanying his silhouette internationalization of sound money and for integrity there is no substitute. This coin has become a prized collector's item. By that time, he had become a very popular speaker at seminars for precious metal investors. His company became a major seller of the famous gold coin, the Krugerrand of South Africa, then the Canadian Maple Leaf in 1979, and the U.S. Gold Medal in 1982. They were purchased from Deacon Company and resold by many exchange houses worldwide. An indication of his respect in financial circles and his success in the banking world came in 1974, when Dick was one of the then-President Gerald Ford's guests at the White House dinner in honor of Australian Chancellor Bruno Krieski. In 1975, Dick was candidate for the position of regional director of the U.S. Federal Reserve Bank, but lost the election. Dick also published two books in his lifetime, one about the international banking in 1945, and another one in the 70s about the company's history. After the Vietnam War in 1975, the company established outposts in the Vietnamese refugee camps in Southeast Asia to buy the gold brought by the refugees. On the first day of operations in Guam, Deacon Company reported purchasing more than a half a million dollars worth of small gold bars called tells that the refugees were bringing with them. He also managed a growing money transfer operations to the Philippines. This country was a U.S. colony from 1898, after the Spanish-American War, until World War II, 50 years of occupation, with several failed attempts to gain independence. By this time, Dick and Company was handling a large movement of funds through his offices in Hong Kong, in Japan, Singapore, Indonesia, etc. But many people in the U.S. government were not happy to see Dick's largesse in handling large movements of money domestically and internationally. And his closeness with some government officials was seen suspiciously by others. The regulatory issues that Deacon Company was facing appeared in the late nineteen seventies. In nineteen seventy seven, a federal grand jury in San Francisco accused the California Company of three hundred seventy seven charges of willfully failing to file currency transaction report of CTRs and the company was fined $40,000. An article interviewing Dick in 1977, at the same time of this fine, provides a good overview of his position on the market and the government, as he speaks very openly about his theories on economics and the international currency market. In the article, he states, the company will always comply with the laws and regulations of the U.S., but will only open its records for government inspection if the laws require us to open the books for them for legitimate purposes. He was confident he could challenge the U.S. government's need for records and information. The obligation to file CTRs for banks and financial services companies arose from the passage of the Bank Secrecy Act of 1970, the BSA, It was following a December 1968 hearing held by the House of Representatives that gave birth to the Bank's Records and Foreign Transactions Act, which is known as the BSA. It passed in 1970 as a vehicle to combat organized crime in the U.S. and to track the flow of cash. But the Supreme Court challenged the law and did not go into effect until 1974. The regulation required the filing of a report for any transaction over $10,000. Currency Transaction Report, or CTR. This law is common knowledge nowadays for all companies in the sector, and has been replicated in almost all countries worldwide. Science at most international airports remind us of the importance of passengers declaring sums greater than $10,000, so that control authorities can fill out a report or a CTR. However, when this law passed in 1974, it did so very quietly and went unnoticed. Regulators were not aggressively pushing banks or financial services companies to fill out CTRs. And there was a lot of uncertainty about who we should or should not report. During those years, there was never an investigation into whether banks were filing these reports, not even after the charges against Dick in 1977 in California. The company's small fine of $40,000 is an evidence that this law was of little importance at the time. Dick survived this accusation, and the investigation demonstrated the many irregularities in the procedures that were followed by the company's employees on accounting and controlling the management of large sums of money. Although the employees began to file some CTRs after that, the policies for CTR processing were not widespread within the organization, and they were not followed by all the staff, as was proven years later. In 1990, Nicholas Dick and the famous violinist Yehudi Menuhin won the George Washington Award granted by the Hungarian American Foundation. Forbes magazine began publishing the list of the 400 richest people in 1982. And in that year, as well in the following two years, Nicholas Dick appeared on the Forbes list with a personal wealth of $400 million. It is worth pointing out that Dick's problems, apart from the growing suspicion of the US law enforcement agencies, of his activities, and the regulatory persecution that was budding, were impacted by a business matter, the emergence of the offshore financial centers in the Caribbean. By 1982, his company opened six new branches in four North American cities, San Diego, Denver, Las Vegas, and Boston, raising the number of offices in the country to 14, and invested more than $2 million in advertising, a very large sum at the time. With the decline in gold prices worldwide, The company was also hit hard, and Dick mentions this in a 1982 article in the New York Times. Let's leave Dick at the pinnacle of his empire, with everything ready to tumble down as we end this episode 6 and prepare for next. The short history of foreign exchange and how Nicholas Dick impacted the sector will be revealed next. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Crosstalks conversations that drive innovation. The book, Sending Money, is available on Amazon. For comments, questions, and feedback, use our social media channels, LinkedIn, Facebook, and YouTube. See you soon.